0: Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Camaro, And this episode is going to be the Duke Recruiting Deep Dive under K in the, in the Coach K era. This is kind of, a, it was recorded at the same time as a recent news and notes podcast for mid-September. So it is with joke audio. It was recorded at the same time I decided to separate it because this for this I have recorded bonus a bonus section which is just solo which is really really getting in deep so I I was able to have just a kind of a fun discussion with Joe going over the errors and the recruiting factors but then after the outro whoever is listening Keep listening after the outro, and I will just go deep, deep, deep on various categories like RSCI rankings, McDonald's All-Americans, red shirts, guys you reclassify, one-and-dones, transfers, whether Duke's white guy reputation matched up before the one-and-done air and more. So keep listening again after the outro, uh, because that's when it gets really deep. I know that part is not for everyone. That's why I'm saying it's bonus. And It's it's for the casual fans. I think you might be more interested in just the discussion going over the eras and the factors And that's not an insult to anyone for to say casual fans because most fans are casual That is absolutely fine to be that way But for those who want to really nerd out like uh, like I do I mean, I really enjoyed just getting all the context uh, that goes into the recruiting so uh, either way, whatever you decide to listen to, I appreciate it. If you uh, enjoy the pod, this, and any other episode, go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. It takes 15 seconds at most to do both things. That's how you will help me and others. Uh, you help me kind of promote the pod and help others find it. So if you could do me that favor, I would very much appreciate it. But let's start right off with my conversation, the recruiting conversation with Joe Gaudio, and uh, here we go. And what I did, I went through every single year of Duke's recruiting class since he became coach in, 2000, in, 2000, in 1980, 81, sent it all to Joe. Joe printed it all out and killed a couple of trees. If we all run out of oxygen, blame <laughs> Joe, or more uh, fairly blame me because I am the crazy person who loves doing this. I've already done the crazy deep dive into the rotations and the scoring every year and it's like a million pages. but that's the weird stuff I love when I'm interested in the subject, I like knowing as much as possible about it and it's just fun to go back and look. but we'll we'll talk about the recruiting classes today and more so the takeaways from each. We're not going to go too in depth into each class. Kushke, he took over Duke. I mean Vic Bubis, in the 60s he I mean Duke was really really good I mean they they uh, made the regional finals uh, semifinals finals semifinals um in the uh, early to mid 60s but then when uh, Bucky waters took over they were okay Neil McGeechee kind of not so good and Bill Foster's first three years he was 13 and 13 13 and 14 and then 14 and 13 so not great so it's kind of like Coach K. His first couple years wasn't doing too well, but then Foster he made the final uh, second round as a two seed. Remember, this was during the time when only the ACC champion would actually make the tournament. He and and the year before K took over, Duke was a four seed, made the regional final, and then Bill Foster. I guess I'm still not positive why, but he left for South Carolina after the season. So Coach K took over a team that really was doing well under Bill Foster. And I believe they had just lost um, Mike, Mike, uh, shoot, what's his name? <laughs> the, the, the big center calls the ACC games.
1: Jaminski. Yeah.
0: Mike, the G man. I can't believe yeah. I forgot his name, uh, but Mike Jaminsky he had just graduated, but K he still had Gene Banks, Kenny Denard, Vince Taylor, three NBA players. And they went 17, 13 that first year, but then, then came the 10 and 17 and 11, 17 years. Before, he really got himself adjusted. So I think the fact that Bill Foster's first three years were kind of mediocre, maybe the uh, he was able to look back and see that. And plus, Coach K, he was just learning how to do it. He came from Army. And in terms of recruiting, he even admits in the 1980 recruiting class in 81, he was casting a wide net, just trying to get whoever he could. And, I mean, he actually went for Chris Mullen, didn't get Chris Mullen, and he ended up pretty much with not much. His first uh, two seasons, not much. He His assistant coaches, Chuck Swenson, Bobby Dwyer, came from uh, West Point. A couple years later, he would add Pete Godet and Bob Bender, both of uh, them from West Point as well. So he was, he was using a lot of West Point connections, and everything with them came under Bobby Knight. That's how they learned. So... That's what he was doing. He was starting out doing most of the recruiting himself. And let, let's get into it. The first big recruit, not big recruit, but the first impact recruit was actually Canadian, Dan Meager. He was a solid role player. Now, nothing major, but he was still starting even when the uh, vaunted 80, 82 class came in. He was, he was still a starter. And, he, and Coach K, is, when uh, Meager was a senior... He actually showed Danny Ferry clips and said, "This is the type of role you're going to be playing, just a lot bigger in terms." And that got Ferry to come to Duke. Ferry was actually—it was between UNC and and, Duke—and Danny Ferry actually chose Duke, saying, "Coach K, he had the—he could tell like Coach K, the way he recruited him. K came with more fire than Dean Smith, whatever that means. But even early on, getting a recruit over Dean Smith, that that was that was pretty cool and. There was a couple of guys Kay was going for at the same time as, like, Dawkins and Allery, guys like that, that they chose other places, which allowed Kay to have kind of, eh, Duke was the school for them. And uh, some of that has to do with luck, but some of recruiting always has to do with luck. But the 82 class, I mean, that is what basically started everything off with Dawkins, Allery, Henderson, Billis. First guy he signed was actually Weldon Williams. He, actually, he also signed Bill Jackman, who ended up transferring to Nebraska. But that first class, that was huge. And what I'm going to do is we're going to break this down into errors. I wanted to kind of start it off with a little history. But the errors for each era, we're going to go down. We won't mention everything for each one, but just talk about what affected the success or struggles of each era. In terms of rankings/ McDonald's all Americans because I, I was trying to find rankings before RSCI um, started in 1998 and it's tough. so McDonald's all Americans makes it kind of easier to see the elite recruits. Uh-huh. then another factor type of error/ continuity, uh, another assistant coaches, the fourth recruiting strategy, five transfers, six red shirts, seven the unexpected, 8 program reputation and 9 just simply whether guys work out or don't. So we're not going to go over each one, but just kind of those are some of the factors affecting each group. So I talked about 1980, 1981 casting a wide net. 1982 through 1991. I sent you this uh, huge list, as I said. You, you, kill, you killed many, many a tree by printing this out. <laughs> Did you have any takeaways? I know we didn't get to actually see these guys live, and most of what we know is just what we read and or the very few clips we can watch on YouTube. But is there anything about ni- 1982 to 1991 which immediately stuck out to you?
1: Uh, no. I mean, obviously it was a different era back in the day where – these guys would come in and stay for four years. And we mentioned, I think we spoke, a lot of it had to do with they just didn't have the opportunity and the money wasn't really there for them to leave. So you're able to build a little more of a team with chemistry and build a team that, that plays better together. And you're able to pick and choose the positions you want. So you don't, you could get a point guard and you know what positions you'll need. Based on who's leaving in four years, you, does that make sense? What I'm trying to say, so, so, it just, it, it just made it. I feel like it made it easier to recruit, but it also made it easier to, to stick to the type of team and nucleus you wanted to build. So, that first, that first, um, you know, with Dawkins and Ellery and Henderson and and Billis and Jackman and Williams, that really was, I think, was integral in the success for Coach K to, to start off and have a great start to his career. So that kind of was a springboard into to different recruiting classes and, and, and continuous success. So,
0: Yeah, I mean, just a, a stat that goes to show, I mean, freshman double-digit scores under K. Dawkins and Allery, they did it in 1983. The next guy to do it was Grant Hill in 1991. So it just shows how important they were. It wasn't just that K was getting them to build the program. It's just they were needed to contribute immediately because there was not much uh, big-time ACC talent on that team already. It was basically uh, Dan Meager and then those four guys, and they were ready, and they all worked out. And that's one thing where Coach K's strategy, targeting fewer players at the necessary positions compared to that wide net – It helped him convey how much he wanted each recruit. The downside of that, as we really wouldn't see it till later, is a potential of really few backup options if the recruits don't pan out. The thing during this first decade, though, from 1982 to 1991, they all panned out. Or, or, I would say, uh, a large percentage of them worked out. And... In terms of the type of air continuity, you said it, in terms of there weren't options which allowed them to kind of get more money or jump to the pros. Jay Billis has been quoted on this. It's not like these guys had some strong moral fiber, which they were so devoted to their school and, hey, they agreed to stay four years. No, there was just that's where they were, and that's the option they had. That was the best option. So there was no danger of them leaving. So Kay could just kind of recruit Someone uh, who can make an impact or develop in a couple years, and by the time the uh, that 82 class graduated or even were upperclassmen, then the development would start to come from the next class, and it would keep going. I mean, Christian Laettner, he's been he said that they would basically, at a certain point, coach themselves because it's just tradition and. The, with the system they would they would get to know the system but it all started out with that 1982 class so i think that was huge and they they were ready to contribute immediately not just contribute but at a high level i think one thing that helped i mentioned bill jackman but besides that there was really no transfers so you know that continuity was coming red shirts there's really no red shirts medical or freshman, whatever you want to call it there was uh no unexpected I mean it's it just made things the continuity help so much and that's it's what goes on a lot at the mid majors now just with a bit of a lesser talent but there's so many good basketball players all over the world in the current day that are all over the country now that they those mid majors can still do well if they develop players throughout four years so at a much higher level, Coach K was almost like Duke was like a mid-major program in that time period developing guys over four years and it worked out pretty well I would say because while they might not have been as good in the regular season as the current um, era teams they were always ready for March and I mean they had quite a run of final fours during that time which goes to show I mean they would be at their strongest around March.
1: Yep that's that's the beauty and and unfortunately we've struggled a bit in March over the last ten years, I think, in terms of just not meeting expectations as a Duke fan. But for the most part, I mean, if you have Coach K on your side and, and he's the one pulling the strings in terms of putting together your your team and your roster and your play calling and your the, the style of play and, you know, you, you're, you're in pretty good hands. So.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So, and obviously the, the success came with it. Um, moving on to the next era, I would say uh, 1992 to 1996. And to really understand, I, I said there weren't, um, there weren't transfers. There was actually one at the end of that period Which would have mattered. There's actually two. In in 1991, there was uh, Crawford Palmer and Billy McCaffrey. And Crawford Palmer, he was a McDonald's All-American. Billy McCaffrey, McDonald's All-American. Billy McCaffrey in that championship game against Kansas made as big an impact as anyone. He was a lethal scorer, transferred to Vanderbilt, where he averaged 21, I believe, both years. He was a stud, and you you think how those teams developed and the continuity, I was saying – when you're so dependent on that continuity and everyone has that set position, you're counting on guys to develop at certain times. I mean, Billy McCaffrey, you put him on the uh, that 93 team, which after Leitner graduated, I believe Brian Davis graduated, I mean, they, they they were in need of some some guys to really take over those roles. And Billy McCaffrey could have been huge. And while the NCAA tournament, as you were kind of saying, it's crapshoot, that game against California, you just wonder how McCaffrey would have done. I mean, he was a really, really elite college player. Crawford Palmer, he he was great at Dartmouth, although the uh, the Ivy League at that point in time wasn't quite – the the talent was a lot lower. But even so, that first, that kind of chink in the armor, I would say, was the Billy McCaffrey transfer, which they hadn't really – They hadn't really had to deal with in any way before that. It was just you knew what you were getting each year. Yep. So moving on uh, then, I mean, the 1990 team, Grant Hill, obviously he was – Ready immediately, and then you knew you were going to have that's the, a great roster for the next couple years. So, even though I mean, Antonio Lang, he was a good role player, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the big time players and then role players to play alongside of them. So, he worked out. Marty Clark, he at times, and Christian asked, I mean, he, he's another transfer, and actually, he was before 1991. 1990, he was the second Duke transfer after Bill Jackman. And he actually averaged 20 a game in American, shot 43% from deep. So he's another one who could have made an impact. But still, not not many transfers, but I think that was still a wake-up call for heading into the new era. And then 1991, Cherokee Parks. He was a very good big man in a supporting role, but even so, I'm not sure he's someone you could rely on as the go-to guy. So then when you look at some other guys around that time, when you had Eric Meek and Kenny Blakeney, As the other recruits there, They had Chris Collins and Tony Moore the next year. Jeff Capel, Greg Newton, Joey Beard, Carmen Wallace. I mean, these are guys. Some of them, like Jeff Capel and Chris Collins, they can be solid uh, contributors. But I think Duke was really missing that go-to guy, that elite college player. And as the as the and even the uh, I'm looking at I'm looking through here these. Role players, They didn't even work out really well. Joey Beard, he transferred. Um, he was the only McDonald's All-American in 1993. So it was a rough time for getting the elite players. And Trajan Langdon was huge in 94. I mean, he came with Ricky Price and Steve Wojo, but uh, Wojo took a couple years. Ricky Price kind of fell off after a couple years. Langdon was big, but you think about the recruiting classes prior to to the 94-95 season, it was kind of destined for that team to kind of fall apart because it just – they didn't have – I mean, Cherokee Parks was pretty good, but not a go-to player, and the rest was Trajan Langdon and just guys who really weren't meant for those roles. So that was a rough year, and then you're thinking, oh, they can come back strong. But Trajan Langdon, he had to take a medical redshirt in uh, 1995 when Taman Domzalski and Matt Christensen were coming in. So it's another recruiting class where you get nothing. So in terms of going over just during that time of the unexpected, you get the Trajan Langdon sophomore year redshirt. The recruiting strategy took a couple bumps with the transfers out. The assistant coaches, I think that's what I think really affected things. Although Coach K, he switched from just the Army guys to more of his ex-players. Um, let, let, let's look at who we had during that period. With the assistant coaches, started, uh, here we go, Amaker came in before the 87-88 90, 90, season, Mike Bray the year before. So Amaker and Bray, although Bray wasn't an ex-player, he still had an impact. And Jay Billis came in 1989. So we started to get those guys, Quinn Snyder in 92-93. But even so, I, I just think those guys weren't recruiting at the level th- that they had hoped for, and it was just such a difference. I, as, I mean, we both don't know, because we weren't around during that time, how much went into the recruiting, but it fell off pretty big from the decade prior. Is there anything you noticed about that decade? I mean, they, ha- they had Trajan Langdon. He was a big recruit. But other than that, really from like 92 to 95 it was some pretty poor recruiting classes.
1: Yeah, it it was pretty light in terms of, I mean, Cherokee Parks was a good player, but again, not a, not a cornerstone type of player for your roster. Uh, Langdon obviously became a star through you know, one of, still one of my personal favorites of all time, but they, um, it just was a lot of role players. A lot of guys they may have thought was gonna were gonna turn into different style players, but for the most part, I mean, it just seemed to be a a large bunch of good basketball players, but nothing great.
0: Yeah, and you need that guy who's basically ready right from the get-go. I mean, Trajan Langdon, right. he was he was pretty want. good in his freshman year, but just they almost needed him to dominate immediately, and that wasn't fair for his skill set. But I think a huge recruit. The last part of that era that was big before K changed everything was getting Rashawn McLeod as a transfer because he was yep. someone who was really... His first year, he was big time but not quite um, a go-to guy. But then his his senior year, redshirt senior year for that 90... Uh, was He was there for 96, 97, 97, 98. I mean... He was, he was amazing. I mean, even in his first year, basically, when he fouled out versus Providence, Derek Brown went off. Duke had nothing. I mean, Duke was just so limited. They were still kind of trying to build back up. I mean, it was Langdon, McLeod. I mean, Capel and Collins did what they could. But still, McLeod really did a good job carrying them And, and uh, I would say Langdon played off that. So McLeod will never get enough credit for what he did, in my opinion. But 92-96, it was rough for getting elite players besides McLeod and uh, and Trajan Langdon. Um, the last part of that, they did get Carwell, Chris Carwell and Nate James, though. Really good role players, but again, we're talking about guys who can carry a team. Then everything changed. Johnny Dawkins arrived in 1997, and all of a sudden, the recruiting picked up. What also changed is that K... He had back surgery, Missed obviously missed the 94-95 season. When he came back, he changed it to all of his ex-players as uh, assistant coaches, along with uh, Tim O'Toole. And he tried to really divvy it up because he was doing so much of the recruiting himself before. So now the assistant coaches came in big, and a guy like Dawkins was huge because he could... He could speak to these kids, maybe like Kay couldn't at times, or, or, or another play, another assistant coach on the team. I mean, when Dawkins joined the staff, actually, it was immediately all ex-players. It was him, David Henderson, and Quinn Snyder. Then uh, Wojo joined the next year, and then from 2001 through 2008... Dawkins, Chris Collins, and Wojo. Nate James joined after that. I mean, it was just... You got that continuity, and you got guys who had played under Coach K who could talk to recruits, really let them know what's expected and everything. And I really think that helped a ton. So, immediately, that 97... When he arrived for the 97-98 season, they they got a ton. Let Let me look at the 97 class. And... It's just it stands out so much more than before. Yeah, you got Brand, you got Battier, and you got Avery. You also got Chris Burgess, who was considered a good recruit, but after two years and getting overtaken by Brand his first year, he transferred to Utah. But I mean, there's certain guys who they step on the court, and you can immediately tell those are difference makers. Brand, Battier, and, and William Avery. I mean, immediately. You put them on the court, and these aren't guys. You kind of they're feeling their way. They were ready to contribute right away. So I think that's something that Duke was missing at a time when they just didn't have really, I don't know, the, the understandably the patience to to be able to have everyone develop over four years. They needed guys who could contribute immediately. So that '97 class, it was comparable in a way to the uh, to into the two, uh, 1982 class in terms of the sheer talent coming in ready to contribute?
1: Yeah, that that 97 recruiting class definitely made a huge difference. I mean, you're talking two of, you know, William Avery was very good as well, but we're talking Brandon Badier are two of the ultimate greats to ever play at Duke and play together. So when they both came to the um, the team, it just, I don't know. It just it, you could just tell it was just a different. You just had different type of talent on the court. I mean, it was just very, very, very obvious.
0: Yeah, and just, and just like that, nineteen eighty two or uh, the nineteen eighty three squad, which came from the nineteen eighty two recruits. They, I mean, there was really no other guys who made up the squad. It was. Just, I mean, they were so thin, and it got to the point where, like, I mean, I still wonder what Coach K was thinking in that ninety nine championship game. Because uh, 1998, they got Maggette. He was really the only recruit, and he was the sixth man. And he only played a couple minutes. Besides that, it was just all the starters. I mean, he put so much trust into that 97 class along uh, along with Nate James and Chris Carwell. I mean, those guys were huge. They were absolutely huge. All right, so the next era comes, 1997. No, I said 1997-2004. But uh, so, so let's go from from uh, – all right, so we, next we get to the 1999 class. You could argue before the one-and-done era, it was Duke's second-best class ever, behind the 1982 class. Jay Williams, Carlos Boozer, Mike Dunleavy, and, I mean, also Nick Horvath. He was uh, unranked, but also 1998. That's when you start the RSCI rankings easier to see where these guys were ranked in high school, so you can see how they were, and McGetty was number 16, but you got Jay Williams number 3, Boozer 8, Casey Sanders was 16, didn't quite work out, but Dunleavy 26, and they just, all of them almost played above their ranking, and that's really rare, and I mean, Jay Williams ranked number 3 playing above the ranking, that shows how good he did, and again, immediately ready to contribute. That 2000 team, no depth. So I think when Kay needed to load up, he did it pretty well. And then after that, you could kind of the same way the early 80s after the 1982 class. He just got Duhon in 2000, Daniel Ewing in 2001. And then he was ready to re-up again with with, uh, Reddick, Sheldon, Sean Dockery in 2002. So I think it was just that 1999 class, one of the best ever as well. Definitely a top five K recruiting class. And I mean that will go down in history. I mean Jay Williams, Boozer, and Dunleavy, those weren't just good college players. They they were not just great college players. They were great NBA players.
1: Yep. And here you go. Here's that's a championship recruiting class right there. That's the main thing. Those are those are champions right there. Those are players who came to Duke with huge and high expectations and delivered on those expectations. So as good as this last Duke recruiting class was, as good as a couple of the other rec- recruiting classes were, this has to rank ahead of them, in my opinion, because they did what the others didn't do. They hung a banner in Duke.
0: Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, you're still dealing with occasional guys like Michael Thompson. He didn't work out. He was he was a number 30 recruit, uh, McDonald's All-American. He transferred after a year uh Then you have Shavik Randolph, who he left after three years. He had had a rough injury-played career at Duke, but uh, they they were hoping for a bit more. But they could survive guys not working out or leaving before they expected just because, again, there's the continuity. I mean, especially with the 99 class, J. Will, Will, Boozer, and Dunleavy each staying for three years. I mean, that's kind of unbelievable at a time when guys were starting to leave. So then you get to the uh, 2003 class and you have Lou Aldang, amazing. I mean, he was, I mean, as a freshman, ready to contribute right away, not just contribute, but was huge. But he left after a year. I don't know if they could have seen that coming. Also, Chris Humphreys, that was the same year. He, uh, he agreed to come to Duke, but Coach K, from what I've heard, wouldn't promise him the immediate role of being like a go-to player. So he decided to take... Uh, take himself to Minnesota. So a guy like Chris Humphreys, the number 10 recruit in the class, all of a sudden you thought you had him, you don't. Then the next year, I mean you get a guy after so you got nothing from the class going into the following year. Yeah, Luol Dang left early and Chris Humphreys you never really had. So you get DeMarcus Nelson, David McClure, and then you think, "Oh, Sean Livingston. He he's crazy talented, number 2 recruit in the class." Nope. All of a sudden the word starts to get out that, hey, he could be drafted really high if he decides to just go to the NBA. He goes to the NBA. So while DeMarcus Nelson was a solid player, again, you're kind of looking at a team without go-to players. So you go to 2005 through 2009. That's the next era. Coach K is away during summers with the national team. Do you think that affected things um, in terms of recruits?
1: Uh, looking at the recruits, I would venture to guess probably so. Um, a couple of the cl- we've had a couple of really good players individually in those classes, but no class that really had multiple difference makers in it. So you look at the, the 2005 class, where I mean Demarcus Nelson was a good player. Demarcus Nelson was, you know, at, at one point was a leading scorer in, in the state of California, which. I'm sure there's been some talent that's come out of that state before. So you look at – I mean, Josh McRoberts is the number one overall recruit. Like, I just – I don't see – I didn't see – Greg Paulus, Boatang, Potius, and and Boykin, who obviously ended up leaving, and I believe he went to Cal. That's where he went, right? He went to California?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so just – No real huge difference maker at all in that draft in that recruiting class. Then you go to the next recruiting class in 2006. You get Gerald Henderson was, you know, good at Duke. Shire was obviously a great Duke player. So like, but still no huge, no stars at all. Like no superstar type players. You know, guys eventually turned into one good players, but no superstar. The only one you could venture to maybe. Call a superstar out of though that actual era that we were talking about, you know, is maybe Nolan would be considered a superstar at that aspect, but Singler and Shire, them three together, were great together. But I don't know. I think I think it made a huge difference because I think the majority of his focus was was more on the USA than it was, you know, in his own backyard recruiting.
0: I mean, it somehow worked out with Shire, Singler, Smith, and Henderson; those four. They really were the core because it's because
1: uh, they stayed. They stayed.
0: Yeah, and I just I think, or I, I don't know. This is just looking at those years before where guys left early or all of a sudden changed their mind. I think K wanted continuity, and there's a certain type of guy who, when you recruit, you're, you you kind of have a feeling based on their history or whatever mm-hmm. else that they might stay. And I am I'm not saying that he went more for. It's just interesting because when you look at the stats, the stats don't lie. And in terms of uh, from, okay, from 1998 through 2004, RSCI top 100 recruits, there was 12 black guys and three white guys. It was Dunleavy, Redick, and Shavik Randolph. From 2005 to 2009, top 100 recruits, it was six black guys and 11 white guys. And I'm not saying any there is cause to effect, but there is something to the stories of there were certain guys who turned Duke down around that time because they just they weren't comfortable with the way the team was assembled and certain guys that they, they, they didn't like. And just it's unfortunate based on socioeconomic, you look, I mean, just in general – you're a white guy is more likely to stay. I'm not saying that's the case with everyone. I am not. I'm not even going into that shady area. But I am just saying there's certain guys that they got who maybe Coach K thought had a better chance of staying than other guys because of 1998. Elden Brand was great. Stayed two years, and there's no way in hell he should have stayed more than that. He was number one pick, and uh, there was a. We've talked. Ourselves about uh, there was a letter a Duke student wrote to Elden Brand that was very uncalled for. Anyone who's wondering about that, Google it. And it was just Kay was adjusting to kids leaving early. So he just maybe he wanted guys who just were willing to stay. But either way, it makes it so that some of the top tier talent was turning them down. And I said 2005 from 2009. There He missed out on 2006, Brandon Wright. 2007, Patrick Patterson, though it was kind of between Patterson and Singler at that point, so they got Singler. They made out quite well. But in 2009, John Wall and Kenny Boynton, I mean, they missed out on those guys, and those are some guys who you just wonder what kind of difference they would have made. And this is very elitist because we're looking at those teams, and even though the the 2007 team... They lost first round of VCU. After that, I mean, they were still... They did remarkably well, considering everything. I mean, like I said, those four players who carried them, those are huge. Shire was one of the few players for Duke who was able to average big, uh, big points immediately. But, uh, I mean, you look at, like, 2008, that season. 2008, 2009. Elliott Williams exploded at the end. Then he leaves. He goes to take care of his sick mother, and he transfers to Memphis, he would have been huge. The year before, you had Taylor King. Before that, Jamal Boykin, Eric Botang. I mean, so, and Oleg Chiz. Um, Oleg Chiz, it, it depends whether you want to count him 2009 or 2010. But either way, these are guys that were expected to make an impact, and they left. I mean, especially like an Elliott Williams. So the fact that they were able to kind of, Gerald helped carry them to the to the 2009-2010 season. But it was pretty much, I mean, Nolan, Shire, and Singler. You look at their points in that that 2009 10 season and what they got. Lance Thomas was great as a uh, supporter. And Zubek, he had been injured pretty much for three straight years. He was finally able to come on strong. But, I mean, a guy like Zubek, even though everyone's happy how it turned out, you're expecting more from a guy like that. Well, let's see, what was, what was Zubek? Zubek was Zubek was the number 25 recruit. Lance Thomas, he was great. I don't think he averaged more than five points for Duke. Zubek, yeah, he finished out great. I mean, we're really happy that everything worked out. He didn't quite live up to standards either. So I think we remember him so fondly because the team did well, and that's understandably, and they were great teammates. But you got to have those guys who will carry them, and, and I think Duke was just really fortunate with how it turned out with Shire, Henderson, Singler, and uh, Nolan Smith because they didn't get what they were hoping for with many of the other guys.
1: You're right, and they, the Zubeks and players like that were obviously a huge part of of that national title team in 2010. But, um, you look at just just taking a look at it and you mentioned you know coach k was going after specific players to that would stay so you look at shire you look at singler you look at lance you look at um who am i missing there lance shire uh, yeah you're missing no- and nolan you know you're talking you're talking guys that are good basketball players but none of them are elite athletic talents. Like you can just tell the, the majority of the prospects you see go really high in these NBA drafts. The the, you know, the Zaire Smiths and stuff, players that went last year that have a lot of work to do in terms of basketball talent. But they're off the charts athletically. And those guys weren't that type of player. They just consistently they were just good basketball players with good basketball minds. And the NBA is is more of a flashy type of league and those guys weren't those types. So we got lucky to have all three of those guys stick around for four years because they, you could tell that with just their just their you know, their continuity together and the way they played together and the way they, you know, loved each other and played together as, as a unit. Them staying four years is, is a huge reason why our program was so successful during that period. So.
0: Yeah, one of the best uh, recruiting efforts probably ever was Johnny Dawkins actually convincing uh, Nolan Smith to stay at Duke after mm-hmm. his sophomore year because Dawkins left for Stanford and Nolan Smith wanted to come with him. And Dawkins said, no, you made a commitment to Duke, stay at Duke. And it really worked out. And uh, Thank
1: you, Dawkins. I yeah, I appreciate mean, that.
0: Another guy who had a rough personal time um, during his Duke career, but, I mean, always credit to him, Andre Dawkins. He reclassified to come for the 2009-2010 I mean, season. I mean, those two shots, two threes he hit against, I believe it was Baylor, in the Elite Eight. No yeah. two shots bigger, so... I mean, there's, there's guys who just, they understand their role and they play it to the best of their abilities. But the main guys, they were huge. But uh, in terms of who they lost out on, that goes back to one of the factors I was talking about in terms of reputation. At that point in time, Duke, I think, well, they did have, I mean, Jay Will. I mean, those, class, those classes where everyone was there kind of in a chunk with, like, uh, Brand, Magetti, and uh, then um, Jay Will, Dunleavy, and Boozer. I mean, they worked out really well in the NBA, but in other classes it was still Coach K would get guys for his system, and they developed a reputation as Duke didn't have good NBA players, which had been going on for a while. Dawkins was okay, but besides, and Grant Hill, even despite his injury history, could have been a legend, was still very good. But besides sure. that, a lot of players who were great college players didn't work out. Even a guy like uh, Danny Ferry, who was huge in college, didn't quite work out the way some might have thought. So you get these guys like a John Wall, who knows he's an NBA player right away, turning down Duke for Kentucky with Cal Perry, who embraced the one and the one and done right away. Whereas Coach K, even when he was coaching the Olympics, he kinda he didn't do that. I think what was the one and done. They said that but before about the 96-97 season or 97-98 or I'm sorry 2006-2007 or 2007-2008 and coach K I mean he made an, he made efforts but he he lost out on those guys who had that one and done potential even like a I think he went for Greg Monroe in 2008 as well one thing I think it was great is for them to uh, get uh, Seth Curry because they got him to transfer and he was ready for the. He was on the uh, championship team, ready for the 2011 season, but that's when we start the tiny era of 2010 through 2012, because that's when Jeff Capel came. Jeff Capel, he he was big time recruiting at Oklahoma. There were some uh, issues there, but uh, I mean, he he got a guy like Blake Griffin, and that's when they got uh, Kyrie and Kyrie Irving and Austin Rivers. So there was a, a willingness, an ability to get a one-and-done, plus basically Rodney Hood, he was considered a, a transfer one-and-done, if you want to call that. So Jeff Capel, he he did a better job. I don't know if it was him or just Duke in general, but either way, they were able to show they could lock down a one-and-done type.
1: And and boy, has it changed completely to where they've surely showed the ability to lock down the one-and-dones now, because the majority of the classes we're getting are – you know, so you see how it, it progressed through the years. You know, he had a specific type of player he liked from in, in a certain era. Didn't go well. So he changed to another type of era and saw with, like, Singler and those guys, that went well. But then you just saw the game changing. The game just completely was shifting to a faster-paced game and a positionless basketball game and put stuff like that to where, these elite prospects were dominating at the college level, like dominating. Kentucky had when they had Walton they had Rose and they had all these they were flat out dominating. So they had no choice. I mean Duke had no choice. Instead of as much as I love the the Matt Jones of the world and the you know the the Rashid Suleimans and you know you have to if you're playing a team that has four top fifteen recruits that are guaranteed stars in the NBA you have to be willing to make a change and, and not let the game pass you by. And I think Coach K may have took a little longer than I wanted him to take to make that move. But unfortunately, I don't know. I, I'm starting to wonder if, if it should go the other
0: way. Yeah, I mean, with Kyrie and also Rivers, I mean, it was great that they got him. But still, those two those two kids even, I don't know if it really changed anyone's mind in terms of certain recruits choosing Duke. I mean, even so, I mean, also Rivers, he didn't have much around him. He gets a lot of the blame, which is undeserved for that Duke team. They just had no one else who create off the dribble. It, the, guys like Ryan Kelly and Mason plumley they just took a little bit to develop. So they had kind of come into their own after he had left, and he got some blame for that. And it's just – it really wasn't his fault. He did his best as he could. But then the next year, the recruit, which changed everything – was Jabari Parker, because he's the type of guy Duke just didn't get. The type of guy, he was from Chicago. And man, you get a guy from from Chicago, that opened up everything. I think the impact of Jabari goes pretty under the radar. And, and that's why I have him in an era all by himself. I had 2010 to 2002, and then 2013 is just one era. After that, 2014 and now, that's when basically... The guy – it wasn't just like you try to mix a one-and-done in with the rest. It was – these kids are basically recruiting themselves. They would recruit their friends. I mean even that first year of the 2014 and now, you had Jaleel Okafor and Tyus Jones who were best friends. Then they recruited uh, Justice Winslow themselves. They basically got Winslow to come to Duke themselves, and that's what's been going on ever since. These recruits with social media and everything, they do I'm not saying the, the Duke coaches don't do work. They deserve tons of credit. But these players, I mean, it's, it's really big in terms of getting multiple elite recruits to your school at once. And uh, that, that, that was big for how it's been. You, get, you have, uh, I mean, you go over the one and dones. Let's see here. You had Corey Maggetti, 99. Luol Dang, 2004. Then you had Kyrie I'm in mean, 11, Austin Rivers 2012, Jabari Parker in 2014. After that, I mean, you had Jaleel Okafor, Tyus Jones, Winslow in 15, Brandon Ingram in 16, and you have 10 one and duns in the last three years. So you have 11, 12, you have 14 in the last five years when you had one, two, three, four, five total in Coach K's previous 35 years. So it just shows how much has changed. And it just shows how, basically, guys like before, Coach K would recruit for certain positions. Now it's just, I mean, he won't he won't get multiple in the same year. Although now there's positionless basketball, but even so, like if you don't prove yourself immediately as a high recruit, you'll get you'll get recruited over, like immediately. So you better prove yourself right away, which is why some guys who you think they might have stayed, it might have been in their best interest to stay another year. I mean, Kay's going to replace them with someone else, so there's re- it's really pointless. I mean, why would you stay to barely get any playing time? I mean, guys who have been more than bit role players who stayed over a year since uh, in the 2014 or current era, you have Grayson, obviously, who stayed four years. Right. You have Canard, who stayed two. Bull who stayed three. And Trey's two-plus. So besides that, I mean, you're counting – like anybody who stays more than a you, year, you're kind of surprised at. Because if you, no matter what happens, even if it's a Travon Duvall or, or a Derek Thornton, I mean, they know they're going to be recruited over. So for those who say, oh, they should stay anyway, you got to think what's in their best interest. It's, it's beyond whether they are good enough or not. It's just the, you got to look out for yourself. And with Kay changing the way he recruited, you just gotta you gotta know it's in your own best interest to leave somewhere else. That's why. Well, it's disappointing that um, that Jordan Tucker left. He left so early. It was probably smart. He realized right away he wasn't gonna play. So let's let's go to Butler. He was actually able to play at Butler before he would have if he had stayed his entire freshman year. So that was smart. I mean, it's just right away he went to Duke, gave his best effort, wasn't able to crack the rotation. And left so that that, that's kind of how it is so in terms of the 2014 to current how do you feel about this type of era
1: it's definitely a different type of era different change of pace than what we were used to you know you can you would be able to grow with a recruiting class almost and Mm -hmm. enjoy and get your fan favorites and get your favorite players and not get to know them as people because obviously we don't get that close of an exposure to them, but just, you know, understand their strengths, their weaknesses, and, and, and just know, you know, as a coach myself, the longer I have a player, the better I've, the more comfortable I am with that player, you know, whether, whether it's based on a skill set or, or knowing what his you know, his strengths are, his weaknesses are, and able to build, you know, the rapport for the team and stuff. So while the one-and-done era is very interesting and you get to see the most talented players that you can imagine, like watching them play, you have to find that right rapport. And, And obviously, very rare do you see a team like the 2015 team that Duke had that had a bunch of young players and still was able to, you know, completely win a championship. But it's just a different era, and it and it's and it's frustrating because you feel once you start by the end of the year you, they're not freshmen anymore. You know, you hear that all the time. They're not freshmen anymore. They're juniors or they're like juniors and seniors at that point because they've played so much. But you'd like to see them just maybe stick around a little longer and play together. And but I, I just the way the the era is now, I just don't see that happening.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's newer, younger Duke fans who can't even imagine the type of era that we grew up with where guys did stay, and it was assumed that most, if not all, would stay. Let me ask you, how do you feel about the term brotherhood? That's obviously big time with uh, Duke recruits now started by, uh, I believe it was started by, was it started by Quinn Cook? I know he started banner hunting, was it started by Quinn Cook also, the brotherhood?
1: That I'm not sure. I know he, I remember when he was talking about banner hunters and stuff like that. Like, he definitely was the banner hunting. He started that. But I, I just feel like you have to be somewhere longer than one year to be part of a brotherhood.
0: I agree. And, and uh, to respond to what you first said about wanting to know people more, wanting to get to know these, know these players more than a year, there's a reason why, I mean, my top – we went down our top 10 Dukies or I'm not top Dukies, favorite Dukies. There's a reason most of them. I mean, there's a lot. I named a guy like Matt Jones, guys like that where, yeah, they're four years. They may not be the stars and it doesn't mean I don't understand. I mean, I made a big point of saying you have to have the stars in order to really succeed as a team. But even so, I really love the other guys because you would get to know them more. You get to see them grow, and in terms of the brotherhood, I think it's very interesting how that came about because I really do feel that came when when Coach K was coaching the national team, and he really emphasized to LeBron and everyone the the way things can be branded, the way individuals can be branded, and that's huge now with athletes. Their branding and how they and and how they kind of go about money-making and just how people see them, all that type of stuff. I think the brotherhood refers almost more to the fact of that type of branding more than actually on the court, although I'm not trying to take away from chemistry that they develop on the court. But at the same time, I mean, you got these guys who are in and out. So it's really tough to call it a brotherhood. When it's more about what I feel Duke can do for them, the exposure, as you were saying before, there's so much national attention on them. All their games are going to be on national TV. You, you are, you're surrounded by the most expensive equipment. You're, you're, getting, you're basically being trained in, MB, in NBA facilities. Coach K has NBA connections everywhere. A lot of guys who played under him are in the, are in the NBA or have NBA positions. So I think the brotherhood has a lot to do with that stuff as much as actually it does basketball. The thing that I find interesting now is how recruiting is followed and how like kind of the drama of like, oh, this guy said he's narrowed his list down to this. Uh, this guy's sisters, dogs, friends, housekeepers, um, pet, pet uh, salamander said that he, he's into Duke like it's very interesting it's like it's almost like a rumor mill and I'm not into that so I know in the past in the past years I've mentioned plenty that I don't care about recruiting but when a guy declares for Duke yeah I'm absolutely all into it but in terms of the recruiting I think a lot of people are into that as much as the actual games that's fascinating to me
1: I I try to stay away from the the whole he said she said is this guy coming to do because this guy you know, is he leaning toward this school or looking at the crystal ball or whatever the stuff is that you can do you know I'm more interested in who's on the team and and, and how how the team has to get better to be to get to where they want to get to so I think for me and this is just my personal, Opinion on the whole matter is we're so spoiled as Duke fans that if a team doesn't win a championship it's deemed a it's deemed a, uh, a failure. So that's how good of teams we've had in the past. That's how good of teams we're expecting every year we go on through the year. And a lot of it is hype. A lot of it is social media hype and ESPN. And But the thing for me is when you mentioned your top list of players, like my favorite players of all time, are players that have stuck around. You know, a couple of them are different. Zion was different; he just was a different kind of person. Like you look at Zion, you could just tell he's a different kind of person. But for the most part, my favorite players are the JJ's. The the I was a huge Singler fan; loved Singler. Guys like Nolan and Shire; those guys are the guys who stuck around and truly seem to play for that name on the front of their jersey a little more than others, maybe.
0: Last two points I want to make. are um, not points, but there is an interesting factor of regional because uh, I know Billis was from the West Coast. Um, and, uh, and I mentioned Bill Jackman. He transferred. He was from Nebraska. I think he transferred back to Nebraska after a season. I don't quite know who was from the West Coast from that point on until Demarcus Nelson. Demarcus Nelson obviously worked out. After that, though, it's interesting. There was actually five of the next six guys they got from the West Coast ended up transferring. That was uh, – let me, let, let me find the list here. It was um, – I know it was Jamal Boykin. It was – Taylor King. Yeah, Jamal Boykin, Taylor King, um, Derek Thornton, Chase Jeter –
1: and Chiz, Oleg Chiz.
0: And Oleg Chiz. And the one, the one who did stay was great, Kyle Singler. But it's just really interesting. And, I mean, then the, the next one after that, I believe, was Bagley. And I mean, there's no chance he was transfer, But, I mean, it just <laughs> goes to, like, one of the factors I was talking about, the unexpected. I mean, these are still human beings. They're still kids. I mean, there's plenty of, uh, I shouldn't call them kids, young adults who go to college far away. They don't like it. And so they they come closer to home. They transfer to college closer to home. Basketball players know no different, especially when when they've been kind of top dogs in high school. Then they go far away from where they grew up, and they're not succeeding like they're used to. They might want to come home sooner than others. So it's just things that you can't predict as easily. They've always gotten some of the best players. Now it's just in a different way. The development process is in a different way. And I think... Jeff Capel, Johnny Dawkins in 1998, and, and Jeff Capel coming in, I believe, 2010 or 2011, those two assistants helped change recruiting more than anything. So it's a it's a process that involves everyone adapting to different times. The You could say Coach K's USA experience helped a couple years after you might have thought, but still helped nonetheless in terms of the way guys are able to be branded now, the one and dones. But even so, we miss the guys who stayed longer, but appreciate those who come, who are just crazy talented, who were lucky to watch anyway. So, do you have any uh, last comments about uh, the recruiting? Is there anything, any factor you think deserves to be mentioned more, or anything you deserve, you think deserves to be brought up, a recruit that deserves to be brought up, something that didn't work out, anything you got on your mind? You
1: no, know, there, there's obviously some stuff that sticks out over you know, the course of of the whole shift in paradigm and all that of the whole recruiting. So in the era, I, I remember watching Duke basketball and, and feeling more like in, intertwined with the team during the eras where we had guys that were there for multiple years. Now, it's just a matter of it's game. It feels like it's game to game. It's not I feel like they're not building anything for the future because everything is in the current. So it's like okay, you know, we, we struggled a little this year. Maybe we got bounced a little early in the tournament, but next year we should come back stronger. We have a good nucleus coming in. Unfortunately, it's just constant turnover. So, you know, we've had, we've had some classes where. And I know you mentioned that he took a lot of the blame, and and, and that he rightfully he, he shouldn't take the blame. But I personally think with those teams that we had that year, I think I think Rivers was a huge reason why we weren't good. I just I I just I struggled with a couple of the guys we brought in. The Kyrie unfortunately didn't work because of injury, but there was a couple guys that came we brought in we brought in. Um, the year we had Parker, the year we brought in Rodney Hood, like those guys just, they just seemed to wilt in the big moment. And I just, those guys were great talents, but unfortunately those were a couple of the ones that didn't work out for, in in my opinion. So, you know, I I think it's a, we find, we have to begin to find a more, a better balance of who's going to stay for a little bit. And mix them in with some of these top tier talents and hope hope that it aligns up better because it's grabbing five young kids, shuffling in five new young kids is just not it's not working right now. So
0: yeah, I actually wrote a big feature breaking down the one and done era and how to succeed during it. That was written um, in the preseason before the uh, 2014-15 season, and a lot's changed since then, but. Most of it still applies. If anyone wants uh, me to send that to them, just email Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail. I will uh, send that to you. But, yeah, I mean, you need that, that good blend, that good mix. So I guess one thing, um, it was a 2022 where it's supposed to go back to uh, guys can go straight from uh, right. high school to uh, pro. So, I mean, that might change a bunch in terms of how they recruit. I wouldn't mind it. It's great to see all these fantastic players, but I wouldn't mind seeing more of a – more continuity involved there.
1: I agree. I agree. I mean, you look at the teams – you look at the last couple teams that have won championships. Just look at a couple of them. So you have Villanova, who had upperclassmen. You had Virginia last year, who had upperclassmen with Kyle Guy, and players like – you know – Obviously you had your DeAndre Hunter in there who was just a stud. But just I just you you have to have a team that is able to play together. You have to have great guard play, but you have to have a team that plays well together because in the tournament it's just a different animal. You know, you're not playing opponents that you're you have all the analytics and all the the tape on that you know like you're playing a bunch of teams it's literally who plays the better game and who is able to adapt and
0: better guard play and you
1: know when you have senior leadership it's you know it's almost priceless
0: would you be able to guess there has been one ACC player of the year under K who is not a McDonald's All-American
1: do you know who that is one player say that again
0: One player under K who was ACC Player of the Year, and he was not a McDonald's All-American.
1: Can you give me a – He won it in 2000.
0: 2000. Coming up empty? I can't – My guy, Chris Carrawell.
1: Was it? Yep. No
0: kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying. You got to have the dominant guys, and it's tough to say, oh, you got to have those those guys who can be dominant. Chris Carrawell wasn't. So he's one of the rare ones. I mean, and and so for me to go up and down this list and saying you got to have guys who can just really take over a game, but then those guys are going to likely be leaving after a year. It's almost kind of being hypocritical by me. So it's tough. It's it's a tough matter of trying to find that happy medium. But, I mean, in college All-Americans under K who weren't McDonald's All-Americans, you got Mark Gallery, Chris Carowell, Sheldon Williams, and like I said, Sheldon was injured, um, Rashawn McLeod, Dante Jones, and Seth Curry. So basically most of those were just transfers who Duke ended up getting, but they weren't highly recruited before. So, I mean, most of your top players on a team like Duke and are going to be McDonald's All-Americans. So if you're going to continue to want those types of guys, they don't stay like they did earlier. So it's just it's an interesting Kind of thing to go through in terms of recruiting,
1: yeah, for sure,
0: okay, so to close this out, what i thought what I thought we'd do, just to kinda I don't want us to ever sound like robots i've I always hate anything having to do with the term brand, your brand, or anything like that, or even content, I feel like it gets. Pretty impersonal. So, I want to at least do something which allows us to kind of humanize ourselves a little more. Hopefully, just everything we do is able to do that. But we're going to start something called the closing 180, where at the end of pods, we each mention whatever we're currently enjoying or interested in at the moment or looking forward to. Could be personal, music, movies, book, per- person, whatever, anything you want. But the 180 is 180 degrees opposite of what the rest of the pod is about, which is about. Uh, Duke basketball and just basketball in general. So it can even be a one-subject rant if you wanted to. It's just a platform of whatever we want to recommend. So I I talked to Joe before this, and again, this isn't preaching. It's not anything like that. It's just something which is fun and allows us to kind of get a little bit of our personality out there. So I'll start us off, and one thing I wished I was hoping to do – the reason I started this podcast as is Commerce Corner. Everything was under the Comoros Corner umbrella, and I called this the Comoros Corner Duke Basketball Podcast, was because I wanted to do other subjects, and one of my favorites is music. I mean, music I'm obsessed with more than sports, I would say. So in t- let me start out with uh, – let me try to find these. Here it is. Um, albums I've been listening to recently that I, I'll recommend. Um, and I'm not going to go anywhere near in depth into any of this. It's just something I'll, I'll write it down on the uh, on the podcast description. And if you want more of these, I could easily recommend more each time. I'm into pretty much every type of genre. So I will say indie rock. Uh, the Carriers. Now is the time for Now is the time for loving me, yourself, and everyone else. It's an album by The Carriers. Reminds me a lot of The War on Drugs. If you like that type of music, Melty Hermit that, um, Hermitage 3, amidst the Flames of Love, it's kind of what I would deem progressive instrumental beat making, it's beats, but it's like incredibly out there and really, really smart, um, Goose, that's a band, uh, live at the Peach Tree Music Festival, they are, I'm sorry, live at Peach Music Festival, they're a jam band, I think they could be carrying the jam band torch for a while to come, decades, Stick Figure, World on Fire, not as many reggae bands as there used to be. Love me some reggae. Stick figure, World on Fire, highly recommended. Rash- uh, Rashawn Ahmad, the Sun. He is a fantastic rapper and a lot of world beat influence in his most recent album, Rashawn Ahmad the Sun. Upcoming albums, His Golden Messenger, um, kind of roots. That's uh, going to be an amazing album. I think it comes out in a week. Um, another one coming out in a week, Khan. K period, A period, A period, N period stands for knowledge above all nonsense. Rapper from Maryland, he's amazing. Doesn't really do much promo himself, which is I respect it to do the to get the grassroots thing going, but at the same time, I wish he would do more promo because he deserves it. So, check those out that are coming up soon. Um, the only other things, uh, the Between Two Ferns movie. I love Scott Ackerman and everything on the Earwolf podcast. Many know that for Zach Galifianakis, and rightly so, between two ferns. Scott Ackerman wrote the whole thing, directed it. I, I'm almost more into it for that because I know it's just going to be funny. And another thing on Earwolf, the Womp It Up podcast, it's Two Crazy Women. They say it's, um, and it's just, I can't even explain it unless you listen to it. They say it's going to be back for the fall with a new season, Womp It Up. I will write all these down. Those are both ridiculous comedies, the Between Two Ferns movie and Womp It Up podcast. So those are my recommendations. That's my 180, which probably went a little bit above 180, but go for it, Joe.
1: Okay, so yeah, I'm a, to, to piggyback off that, I'm a big music fan and everything as well. But um, you know, I'm always interested in trying to find some new type of music that... Um, something different than, than I'm, than I'm used to hearing. So, but mine's going to be a little different. I'm going to do something a little more personal. My, my whole thing is I just, the last couple of weeks have been very, very different for me in terms of um, in parent life. So uh, I have a child now who is going to school. So my, my thing now is just, just to everybody out there, just to enjoy, you know. Although it, we're able to do stuff we enjoy and things we love, and you know, b- make sure to to take a step back and realize, you know, the great things that are going on around us, and just be thankful for for all that stuff going on, and and know that you know, there's more to there's a lot to life, you know. There's a lot more to life. I'm not trying to sound phil- philosophical or anything like that, but just, just understanding that, you know, we, we're we're lucky to be able to do what we do on a daily basis, and and to have the people in our families and, and in our lives that we have. And I'm just blessed and, and and very thankful to you know be a part of you know what we're able to do together, but also just you know, have things in my life to keep me motivated and keep me, keep me grounded as a person and always trying to be better as a person. So, you know, I try to, I try to be the best, you know, father, teacher. I'm a, you know, I've mentioned that in the past husband, you know, that I can be, and it's just great to have, you know, things going around us to, that we can look forward to, but also, you know, where we can make a mark in our life. And it's just great to have, you know family and and my and, and to see my daughter evolve and, and and see stuff like that is is one of the true the main thing in this world that I'm grateful for so i just you know i'm a i'm a emotional guy i'm a you know i get fired up in the moment i'm a competitive guy but at the end of the day i have my daughter putting my hair in pigtails yesterday so you know you just just take a step back realize you know what what's important and and just be thankful for what you got. You know, I'm not again not trying to be philosophical or be preach preach to you but but, you know there's you know, with nine eleven passing and all this stuff, there's a lot of families and a lot of people who who've hit some hard times. So, you know, I think I think if I'm i I'm speaking for both of us, I think we're both pretty pretty uh Pretty lucky to be able to do what we do.
0: Valid words, important words, and uh, well said. Very well said. Okay, so again, that sometimes might be recommendations, sometimes just personal thoughts, sometimes rants, just anything that allows us each to have a little bit of a platform each week. And uh, me and Joe both went totally different directions, and that's great. That's fine. And like I said, closing 180, just anything that's not. Duke college basketball or college basketball in general, just to get let us let you get to know us a little bit more. However, that comes about is great. All right, so we'll be back soon with. Uh, I mean, season's getting really close now, and there'll be something. Hopefully, not, nothing set in stone, but where we do rotations, uh, minutes distributions, maybe another one with uh, positions uh, like. Point guards under K, bigs under K, and then kind of team elements. But And then pr- after that, we'll be good to go. It'll be season time. And uh, like I said, I've already started watching. So, Joe, thanks so much for joining me again. And I will be back with everyone very soon. I appreciate everyone listening to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am Adam Comer. Ladies, gents, one thing remains. What's going on, guys? Adam Comer here with some bonus material for the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. And if you stuck with me, that means you listened to the conversation I had with Joe Gaudio just about uh, recruiting in general, and the different eras and periods and factors that go into recruiting. Now, I th- what I want to do is add some context because I want this to stand alone. I want there to be tons of uh, information that you can go come back to and and see because there's really not much out there in terms of just facts about recruiting overall and uh and it's just in terms of the specifics so what i want to do is i want to go into now just a lot of uh rankings and just different uh categories of like walk-ons interesting walk-ons i feel like uh, mcdonald's all americans red shirts guys who reclassify one and dones transfers whether Duke's white guy reputation matched up before the one and done and, and just a, a ton of stuff like that some of it, it's going to be kind of listing some of it deserves explanation. some of it is fun and I think it's just it, it it's cool to do this just to have it always there so hey let's let's just get it on right now I'm not going to spend too much time on each category because I don't want this to be a complete marathon, so let's 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 just get right down to it. All right, uh, one thing I did want to clarify first: I mentioned how uh, Kay's goal in recruiting fewer guys was and is to convey to the recruits how much she wants them, and I said it works as long as the recruits panned out. I think what a, a better way of saying that what I meant to say. Um, is it's not about them working out, although obviously you want them to. It's that if you don't target many guys, then if your target picks a different school, what, then what? What's the backup plan? So I, I think that was more of what I was trying to say right there. All right, so the reason I like RSCI is the same reason... I like Bracket Matrix. Um, They're just aggregates that collect and show data from a bunch of different sources and then come up with the average. Bracket Matrix, that's when uh, the NCAA tournament selection is coming up and they just collect the predictions from everyone who does it. And they just come up with the average. Like Aggregates, I feel like those are bad things in uh, many aspects of life, like news and all that stuff. But for this, for NCAA tournament selection and for recruiting, yeah, I I have no devotion. So I I just want to know the average in general. So that's why I like those. I mean, when I look at the McDonald's All-American list and I don't see guys like Mark Allery, Kevin Strickland, Antonio Lang, Jeff Capel, Eric Meek, and those guys are on the Parade All-American team. I don't know. It brings up questions. So, I, I mean, I search for Antonio Lang, and I see he's a top 25 recruit. So, I don't I don't know. I mean, just like everything else with recruiting rankings and awards and kind of those all-star games, just take it with a grain of salt. Because, uh, I mean, RSCI begins in 1998. So, before that, it's kind of a crapshoot. So it was kind of the wild, wild west out there. And there was no AAU during the 80s as well. So that had a big effect on everything. I'm not sure exactly when AAU started or at least became uh, more widespread. But it's obviously harder to rank and choose when you just don't get to see the prospects as much, the recruits as much. So the McDonald's All-Americans, by decade, the 1980s, Duke had... 12 1990s, do you get 17 2000s, 20 2010s, 28. Obviously, more McDonald's all Americans because they you got to reload now. You can't, it, you, there's not as much growth and development. It's just kind of the turnover is much greater. I mean, there's even some guys who reclassify at the last minute who they weren't McDonald's all Americans, although you know they would have been. I mean, like uh, Marvin Bagley. Derek Thornton, Andre Dawkins, even possibly Alex Murphy. They all reclassified. And uh, guys who were injured, uh, Harry Giles, Chris Carwell, and uh, Sheldon Williams. I mean, those, those guys definitely would have been uh, McDo- named McDonald's All-Americans, but uh, they were injured, so no go. Um, there was uh, four different seasons when Duke had four McDonald's All-Americans, 1999, 2002, 2014, and 2018. In 1999, um, let's see who they... Uh, that was the Jay Will, Carlos Boozer, Mike Dunleavy, and uh, Casey Sanders, So h- three huge recruits. Casey Sanders was also a very high recruit. I, uh, Casey Sanders, I got to give him credit. I mean, when Carlos Boozer when he hurt his foot, Casey Sanders, he, he put in minutes, he was never the most talented guy, but a big body, and, uh, he, he gave him some solid minutes in 2001, and helped him to, uh, that championship, um, let's see here, and then there was, uh, nine times, they had three McDonald's All-Americans in nine different seasons, it's crazy, and, uh, a lot of them are reasons. A lot of them are reasons. So, um, let's see. They've had 19 All-Americans the last six years, 2014 through 2019. And keep in mind, again, that's with no Bagley, Thornton, Giles. That's crazy. <laughs> I think I mentioned this on the discussion. The only ACC player of the year under K, who was not an All-American was Chris Carwell. But, again, he was injured when uh, they did the All the McDonald's All-American team. So I would think he likely would have made it, but it's still interesting just that fact. Uh, college All-Americans who weren't McDonald's All-Americans. you got Mark Allery, another one who he made parade, but not McDonald's. Chris Carwell, Sheldon Williams, again injured. Um, and then Rashawn McLeod, Dante Jones, and Seth Curry, who uh, were all transfers, who you could possibly argue or it's not possibly it's easy to argue they were overlooked and uh yeah simple as that uh mcdonald's all americans who didn't worked out as hoped for and it's interesting because uh, in possibly the next pod or some sometime near i mean going over certain types of positions and roles on the court it it sticks out i i won't uh I'll just start reading some names. It'll stick out in terms of what type of player has a greater chance of not working out under uh, Coach K, or at least under the Duke program. Um, so we got Martin Nesley, Greg Kubek, Crawford Palmer, Joey Beard, Ricky Price, Taman Domzalski, Casey Sanders, Shavlik Randolph, Michael Thompson, Eric Boteng. And Chase Jeter. I would think that stands out. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's obviously the front court guys. So I'm gonna go into that more in a in a uh, future pod, hopefully before the season, um, and uh, try to kind of figure out what's what the deal is with that. I mean, even good, not great. McDon- uh, McDonald's All Americans. I mean, all Abdul Nabi. He ended up uh, having a, a really productive senior season. Before that, though, it, it was uh, kind of up and down, mostly not great. But he even made the NBA, and uh, he's a, he's had a, a successful uh, run as a I, I believe he calls games, or at least is in the media in in some way. Um, Chris Collins, Nate James, Marshall Plumley, Marshall Plumley's career, Duke. He I, I would almost say. He is somewhat comparable to Al Abdul Nabi in terms of showed flashes at times and then the senior season kind of put it all together as much as their skill set will allow. And then Marquise Bolden. So a lot of front core players they're there, right there too. Um, let's see. I mean, McDonald's all Americans. I keep saying take with a grain of salt, but in the same way, you look at the national championship teams and there's going to be the majority of guys who were named McDonald's All-Americans because those are going to be the most talented ones. And it becomes more blatant as it gets more recent because like I said, when it first started, when they first started choosing, it was just harder. You don't get to see guys as much. So in 1991... It was uh pretty much a seven man rotation in close games. So yeah, I mean, the only two that uh, weren't McDonald's All Americans were Brian Davis and Thomas Hill, two two super talented guys. So I don't know. You could even argue. I mean, I don't know how they did in high school, but seemed really talented right right away. Brian Davis, he did take a couple years to develop. Thomas Hill, by his sophomore season, he was uh he was born he was a born scorer. Um, 1992, they only had a six-man rotation and closed games, but the breakdown was three and three. So you got uh, Brian Davis, Thomas Hill, and Antonio Lang. Antonio Lang, I did mention, made the parade All-American team, but three McDonald's All-Americans, three not. 2010, the main starting five were All-Americans. So was Mason Plumlee for spot minutes. Andre Dawkins reclassified, so he didn't have a chance. And uh, Miles Plumlee, he was a no-go. I I really think that 2010 team kind of hit the jackpot for that perfect middle ground of having a core group of guys who are great college players, but not really explosive enough to leave early and uh, be potentially high picks in the draft. So that worked out. And then 2015... Um, uh, Semi ogile he announced he was transferring early on. So, all nine rotation players were McDonald's All-Americans. And then, all eight of them, once Rashid Suleiman, was dismissed. So, yeah, I mean, that was all of them. Alright, so, going to the RSCI now, the rankings. I mean, again, I don't mean to kind of beat a dead horse here, but... When you hype up rankings so much for, I mean, in high school, there's so much talent difference in terms of who they're playing against. So, I mean, even if you look up the 2012 RSCI rankings, I mean, not only is it a pretty awful group of uh, an awful class. I mean, no disrespect to the guys, but didn't really work out great, um, at least at the top of the list. And you go down, it ends up basically with the possibility of saying, like, I actually saw, like, number 71 through 88 rankings could be just as good, if not better, than most of the top. So the RSCI, again, started in 1998, so there's been 22 years of RSCI rankings. And Duke, they have been at or near the top most of those years. But because it worked out so well... With the 99 class, those three guys, Boozer, Dunleavy, and, and Jay Will, staying three years, which is still shocking to me in a great way, they didn't have to uh, immediately get uh, new recruits. And then the 2002, same way, well, that was J.J. and Sheldon's class. So, I mean, in 1998, they were uh, unranked because they just had McGetty, who, who was, I believe, number 16, And it kind of, you could see, it would go up and down based on how they needed recruits. They, 99, number one, unranked, just Duhon unranked, just Ewing. Uh, 2002, they were number one. 2003, unranked, just Dang. And uh, then uh, they did pretty well, 17-2, number two, number three, number three. And then it, it got to where I talked about when they had a tough time. I mean, it's all relative. Duke having a tough time; they're still gonna get a bunch of guys. But uh, number eleven in two thousand eight, number eight in two thousand nine, number nine in uh, two thousand ten. So Capel comes, and it and it all changes. No, number uh, two in 2011. two thousand eleven. Then for two thousand twelve, you gotta remember they had that two. They had the two thousand twelve two thousand thirteen team, which was uh, very upperclassmen oriented I think Seth Curry Mason Plumley, Ryan Kelly they were all seniors so they didn't need a, cl- a big class there um, so that went down to number 10 and since then it's on I mean number four number one number one number two number two number one and number three so they are just loading up every year so they have had 72 top 100 RSCI recruits um, that would be thir- 34 and 13 years from two, from 1998 through 2010 and 38 in nine years from 2011 through 2019. So in a shorter period of time they need more because again, you gotta you gotta keep reloading. Uh, let's see top five recruits, 16 total of those 16 1998 through 2009, they have three, Jay will, Aldang, and Josh McRoberts. And then 2010 through 2019 in those 10 years, 13. Uh, overall top 10 recruits, uh, 23. They had 8 from 98 th- uh, through uh, 2009, 15 from 2010 to 2019. Overall t- uh, top 20 recruits out of the 72, 43 and uh, th- uh, number 35 one number one to 35. That would be 62. So of their 72 top 100 RSCI recruits, 62 of them were ranked number 1 through 35. Uh, The number 36 through 100, the 11 recruits, that would be uh, Joey Baker, number 37. Eric Botang, 39. Alex Murphy, 49. Marty Poches, number number 53. I'm sorry. Uh, Jordan Tucker, 59. Jamal Boykin, number 60. uh, Marshall Plumley, 61. Oleg Chiz, 66. uh, uh, Alex O'Connell, 69. David McClure, 71. And number 81, Miles Plumley. So of those 11, five transferred Botang, Murphy, Boykin, Tucker, and Chiz. Five stayed. Miles Plumley, Mason Plumley, Poshis, O'Connell, and McClure. And obviously, one is to be determined with Joey Baker. So they haven't been concentrating too much on anything below 35, and uh, there hasn't been too much production. I mean, they got uh, they got they got some good stuff from uh, the two Plumleys right there, and David McClure, He I, I always uh, he's one of my favorites, but yeah, I mean they 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 are really they've been concentrating on the upper tier as it's come to expect. So some unranked non-transfer recruits have made an impact that have made an impact. Lee Malchione, Tyler Thornton, Andre Dawkins, Jack White, possibly Jordan Goldwire, uh, Nick Horvath, who hit a game winning uh, banker in 99 against DePaul as a freshman. Hashtag never forget. And then uh, Reggie Love and Stan Bronson, both of whom I'll discuss among the impact walk-ons. And I I know there was uh, plenty in the eighties, but like I said, it's just tough because I feel like the rankings kind of it's tougher to find the rankings and whoever made McDonald's, I think some of the guys that were left off just doesn't even make any sense. So I named some more of the recent ones Uh, in terms of the RSCI. I I have said that one of the most impressive things of Coach K's entire tenure, probably the most impressive, or at least the craziest, that uh, in um, 35 seasons, 34 tournaments, because obviously he didn't make it in in the uh, 95 tournament, but when he has made the tournament, he's never been below a two seed twice in a row. That's... The more you think about that, that that's absurd. So there is a, a five-year period of recruiting that's kind of just as nuts but in a different way. It's just kind of jaw-dropping. And I don't think we'll really begin to uh, digest this until years from, from now because it's just so absurd. I mean, we're so close to it still. But in 2014 to 2018, five years, 24 recruits. It 11 recruits ranked in the top seven. Okafor, Bagley, Barrett, Giles, Reddish, Tatum, Ingram, Zion, DeVal, Tyus, and uh, Wendell Carter. Seven recruits ranked 11 through 14. Bolden, Winslow, Thornton, Trey, Chase Jeter, Frank Jackson, and Gary Trent. Two recruits ranked 21 through 24. They'd be Kennard and Grayson. Two ranked 35 to 37. Delorier and Baker. And just two other their top 100, that would be Jordan Tucker and Alex O'Connell. So, that's absurd. I mean, 11 recruits ranked in the top seven just in, the, in that five-year period of time. That's insane. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's all there is to say about that. All right, so th- w- uh, in terms of transfers... Um, I'll, I'll give the overall then I kind of I was really interested in uh, what happened to the transfers once they left Duke so we'll go down that because I think we kind of just sort of some people forget about them or we just assume they fail because they left Duke but to each their own and we'll, we'll see how it worked out so there's been 22 total transfers out in the 80s two 1990s there were six In the 2000s six 2010s eight and uh i'm including oleg chiz in the uh in the 2010s with the eight he announced in december 2009 but uh i get it makes more sense for uh to put him in the 2010s i'm also counting sean obi I, i'm counting him in both in and out because I guess it's just better to have it official, even though he really didn't have too much of an effect in or out. But, uh, I mean, injuries suck, and he had to have that surgery. So, all right, let's look at guys that transferred. Um, starting off, Bill Jackman. He was, uh, he was in the first class. I think he might have actually been the first one to sign I can't be positive, but not the first class, but the first big class, 1982, and he's from Nebraska. Transferred back after his freshman year, he had a minor impact. Really, just took some took some time to develop until starting his. He started his senior year, and he had a respectable role in that Nebraska team, but never was a uh, kind of a big time player. And he again he, guys like that in 1982. Unless they made the McDonald's team, I have no idea how good he was supposed to be. So it's really hard to say he lived up or didn't live up to anything because I don't know. We also got uh, Greg Wendt. He was from Detroit, and he was actually recruited the year before Bill Jackman. They both left after the 1983 season, which was obviously the freshman season of uh, the big recruiting class. So... Kind of understandably, he was, I believe, named like Freshman of the Week, uh, one of his last weeks in the ACC. So he was coming on strong, but just couldn't get any playing time once that uh, vaunted class of uh, to, uh, of 1982 arrived. So he did transfer to Detroit, and he averaged 14 and 8 as a senior. So pretty good stats there. Uh, Crawford Palmer, he was a McDonald's All American. He was in the 1988 class. 1991, he transferred to Dartmouth after his junior year at Duke because he just had trouble cracking the lineup at Duke. So he did get a national championship while he was uh, in Durham, but uh, he averaged 17 a game at Dartmouth in his uh, senior season. So while the quality of uh, Dartmouth... um. I think that, that's Ivy League, right? Yeah, I think. Um, it's not what it is now, current, because quality basically every conference is really, really good now, and it wasn't quite that way in the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, still, I mean, I think it worked out for him. 17 a game. Billy McCaffrey could have been one. Uh, he could have gone down in history at Duke One, he was crazy a good shooter, Knocked down, huge for that 1991 championship, Coach K's first. But he wanted to kind of have the spotlight on himself, transferred to Vanderbilt, averaged 21 a game both years he went there. So if that's what he wanted, he wanted the spotlight on him, he got it, and he succeeded, so good for him. Uh, Christian asked, uh, from the 1990 class, transferred in 92 to American after a sophomore year at Duke. And he averaged 20 a game in his senior season at American. So you would have to say that worked out. Joey Beard, he was a McDonald's All-American in the 93 class. He was the only McDonald's All-American in that class and didn't work out. And transferred to Boston after his freshman year at Duke. Very solid career. Uh, Averaged basically a double-double in all three years at Boston. Um, or, or close to it. I mean, I think by his senior year, is like averaging like thirteen. I I forget the exact rebounding number, but almost a double double in all three years. So, again, when somebody's a McDonald's All American, they come to Duke. You're hoping for big things, but he realized soon that it just wasn't gonna happen like that. Transferred to Boston and had himself a solid career. Mike uh, Chappell, I keep wanting to say Chappell just because it feels more right. But uh, part of the 1996 class, 1996 class, '98 transferred to Michigan State. After sophomore year, he was starting for Duke um, during the early parts of his sophomore year. Lost his starting spot, transferred to Michigan State. Didn't really make much of an impact there, so that kind of fell apart for him. Uh, Chris Burgess, 97 class. Elton Brand overtook him. He really had trouble getting minutes at Duke. Uh, Transferred after his sophomore year. Solid at Utah, nothing special, but he was somebody who had big-time hype and uh, never quite lived up to that. Andre Sweet, 2000 uh, class, 2001, transferred to Seton Hall after his freshman year. I believe there was also an academic suspension, so that might have kind of, pushed him out in terms of having a rough time being able to uh, handle that at Duke. Although I don't know all the details, so don't quote me on that. But uh, I believe there was some sort of academic issue. He was a solid role player. His uh, biggest season came as a junior averaging 10. Uh, Michael Thompson, number 30 recruit McDonald's all American in the 2002 class with JJ and Sheldon and uh, Shavlik. Uh, 2003 transferred to Northwestern early in his soft early in his sophomore year. Duke. he started his uh, red shirt junior year strong. He was starting to look good, but was injured and then just never could really get back on the court again. So injuries suck, man, especially for uh, big men. Eric Botang, 2005 class 2006 transfer to Arizona state after his freshman year. He took, he took a while to develop and, uh, by his senior year, he averaged about nine and seven, productive. But again, for McDonald's All American, you would you would think there would have been a little more productivity, but uh, so it is. Jamal Boykin, two thousand five class, two thousand six transfer to Cal. Uh, early in his sophomore season, mono actually set him back. He came down with a case of mono, so that had to have been frustrating. Especially, I mean. You're coming from the West Coast, and then you get sick, so you can't play, and my it's got to be rough. So solid role player, especially during his last two seasons at Cal. Taylor King, two thousand seven class, two thousand eight transfer to Villanova after his freshman season, and then to Concordia. He had a he had a rough go of it. There's really no getting around that. Elliot Williams, two thousand eight class, two thousand nine transfer. To uh, Memphis after his freshman season to be near his uh, sick mom, um, totally understandable. And man, I, I still think the mo- the most shocking thing in season I've ever seen was the way Elliot Williams. He'd been playing like five minutes at most. I mean, he got a bunch of DNPs, and all of a sudden he's like starting and playing like thirty minutes a game, and looking like a beast at Duke. And it's just man. Would have been fun to see him the next season, but he beasted out at uh, Memphis. Averaged 18. I think he was a, f- a first-round pick, and then he tore his ACL, and I think he tore it again. Unfortunate, but uh, yeah, he, he he was a beast. Uh, Oleg Chiz, 2008 class, two thousand uh, December 2009, transferred to Nevada early in his sophomore season. He averaged 13 and then 14 in Nevada. Good score. I, I, I mean, you'd have to say that worked out. Michael Benajay, Silent G, two thousand eleven class, two thousand twelve transferred to Cuse. I wish Kay would have played in more. I mean, I was saying that at the time, um, but didn't happen. Went to Cuse, developed, and man, every year he got better. By his senior season, he was uh, he he was awesome. I mean, just really stuffed the stat sheet in every way, especially scoring. Ran the team, was the point guard, and fantastic. College player. Alex Murphy, 2011 class, 2014 transfer to Florida. Um, he redshirted as a freshman, so he transferred to Florida early in his redshirt sophomore year, then ended up at Northeastern. Wasn't able to be real productive at Duke, especially, I, I mean, not at all, at Duke, and then didn't do much at Florida, but uh, finished. I guess you could say strong at Northeastern. Uh, finished on a positive note there. Semi Ogelet looked like the Incredible Hulk. Never got a chance to really show it at Duke. So 2013 class, 2015 transferred to SMU. Southern Methodist early in his sophomore season. He averaged 19 a game at SMU, you'd have to say. That worked out pretty well. Um, and I think he's with the Celtics now. Not positive. But uh, hopefully he can have a solid career uh, in the NBA. Derek Thornton, 2015 class, 2016 transfer to USC after his freshman season. And now as a grad transfer, he is at BC, uh, Boston College. So I look forward to seeing what he can do this season. Um, That'll be interesting. Chase Jeter, 2015 class, 2017 transfer to Arizona after his sophomore year. He's made huge strides at Arizona, and he could have a great year now. That uh, I mean, it's really the game has slowed down for him. He's actually catching the passes. The hands were an issue always at Duke. I mean, he was kind of thinking ahead to what he was going to do. It almost looked like that um, before he caught the ball all the time because the footwork's always been a lead. I, I, I was always really, really bold about his footwork. I compared it to Tim Duncan. I mean, I compare nothing else about his game to Tim Duncan, but the footwork has always been a lead. There's been no question about that to me. Uh, Jordan Tucker, 2017 class, 2018 transfer to Butler early in his freshman year. He had an up-and-down season, but he definitely showed potential. Plus, I mean, he was 9 for 16 from 3 over his last four games in March. And I know a team that could have used that type of shooting last season at, in March but I'm not naming any names of those of the school that could have used it duke uh, Sean Obi as I mentioned before technically 2013 class transferred out from Rice um after 2000 uh, after 2016 then transferred to Maryland as a grad transfer I mean at duke he was plagued by a cartilage issue in his knee he had surgery and the doctors told him not to play for a year so Graduated and went to Maryland as a grad transfer. I think he was kind of still injured there, so it's unfortunate. So the transfer's out. There's 22 total. And, well, the eight transfers out in, two, in the 2010s. I mean, especially I mean, if you don't count Sean Obie, seven compared to the six in each of the two previous decades, it seems like it's not that big a deal. It's not much more. But if you look closer, 2006 to 2018... You got twelve transfers out in thirteen years. That's counting Sean Obi. So eleven in thirteen years not counting Sean Obi, twelve and thirteen counting him. So yeah, it's starting to it added up during that time. The transfers into Duke total. Uh in the eighties, zero, nineties, one, two thousands, one, and two thousand tens three. Again, counting Sean Obi. So uh you got uh, in the 90s the one the first Rashawn McLeod man I love the impact he had came from St. John's just a beast an absolute beast 2000's the one was Dante Jones another one of my favorites Uh, 2010's Seth Curry and Rodney Hood I mean I don't think it could I mean besides Sean Obie the other the other four couldn't have worked out better in my opinion so uh then you got uh the uh, not so fun category of dismissed. And I, I can't say for sure this was dismissed, but Tony Moore, he was part of the 1992 class and he was I know he he was suspended after 7 games of the 95-96 season. I mean he hadn't really done much in his first 3 seasons at all, but he did start 5 of the 7 games, the first 7 games of that season. And average twenty five minutes so far in his senior year, so he was off to a promising start there. But I, I believe it was academic issues, and unfortunately, never got never got it kind of worked out. So it was it was tough. I mean, you combine that with uh, Trajan Langdon; he had to take a medical red shirt with a knee issue early in the year. And I think that was the season when uh, Chris Collins forgot how to shoot. So. That was a rough one. That was definitely a rough one. Uh, the other is Rashid Sulaiman. I mean, Rashid. Sheep was. Uh, I love. I love that guy, and uh, he was actually one of the. I believe it's twelve non-one and duns to average double-digit points in his freshman season. There's not too many who've done that, and uh, I mean, he showed tons of potential. I think just the switching off and on. Uh, starting coming off the bench, it's just kind of. I don't know if it messed with his head, I don't know what the deal was, but it's unfortunate. Hopefully, he is doing well. Talented dude, all right. Red shirts, and again, there's always going to be the possibility that, as I said at the start of this kind of bonus uh, edition of the pod, there's nothing that has official. Numbers and details and facts on all this. So it's basically me just pouring through every season to try to find all this. So the next category of red shirts, that is one I can almost guarantee I missed I missed some. I guarantee I missed some, especially like the freshmen. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I, I do the best I can, so... All right, we got, uh, I just, I'm just i doing this chronologically. Kenny Blakeney, 91, freshman. Trajan Langdon, as I mentioned, 96. That would be his sophomore medical. Nate James, sophomore, 1998. I think that was, I know one year he had a thumb issue. I believe 98, that was, yeah, he sprained his ankle. That was a high sprain and he only played like six games, so he got a medical red shirt from there, which worked out very well, especially during the his red shirt senior year, which was the two thousand one championship season. We got uh, Nick Horvath, who red shirt his freshman season. Alex Murphy, as I mentioned, red shirt as a freshman. Andre Dawkins, two thousand thirteen, as a senior for his family. Still, man, that's it was such a rough season as a uh, as a freshman. He reclassified, and then if you don't know the story about his sister, just look it up. It's re- it's just it's really sad. Marshall Plumley, two thousand twelve freshman, and Emil Jefferson, two thousand sixteen as a senior medical redshirt, reclassified. Uh, I think I've mentioned all these. Alex Murphy. Derek Thornton, Marvin Bagley, and Joey Baker. Freshman double-digit scores. We got uh, 83, Johnny Dawkins and Mark Allery ready to go right away. Then it's, it was almost a decade until the next, Grant Hill. 95, Trajan, uh, Grant Hill was 91. 95 was Trajan Langdon. 98, Elton Brand. number uh, 99, Corey Maggette. 2000, you got J. Will and Boozer two thousand three JJ Redick two thousand four Luol Dang two thousand seven John Shire two thousand eight Kyle Singler then I got two thousand nine this is I guess kind of in quotes I'm not sure if it should count but Kyrie Irving because still not quite sure if that season happened. Uh, 2012 you got Austin Rivers 2013 Rashid Solomon 2014 Jabari Parker and then it's just, it's kind of flooded. I mean, Jaleel Okafor, Winslow, Tyus, Brandon Ingram, Luke Kennard, Jason Tatum, Frank Jackson, Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter, Gary Trent, Trevon DeVal, RJ Barrett, Zion Williamson, and Cam Reddish. All right, next category one and Duns. You got Corey Maggette, Lou Aldang, Kyrie Irving, Austin Rivers, Jabari Parker, and then the flood comes. Uh, Jet Big Jaw, Tyus Jones, Winslow, Ingram, Tatum, Giles, Frank Jackson, Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter, Trent DeVell, RJ Barrett, Zion Williamson, and Cam Reddish. So you got 19 total. From uh, Kay's first season, the 81 season, to 2010, you got a uh, grand total of uh, zero. Wait, that can't be true, because you got uh, McGetty in 99, and uh, Luol Deng in two thousand four. Hmm. All right. So from now, from I think I meant to put two thousand from from ninety eight from eighty one to two thousand was zero. No, that still wouldn't work. All right, eighty one to nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, that's, that's going to be the one that works. Corey Maggette was first in 99. So 81 to 98, I apologize, is zero. From 99 to 2010 is two. 2011 to 2014 is three. And then 2015 to 2019 is 14, including 10 in the last three seasons. Two and done's. You got uh, four total, two in the 90s, one in the 2000s, one in the 2010s. Uh, let's see, in the uh, 90s, you got, uh, s- same season, in 1999, you, you got Elton Brand and Will Avery. In the 2000s, you got Josh McRoberts. And in the 2010s, Luke Kennard. Three and Dunn's, six total, five in the 2000s, one in the 2010s. You got uh, J. Will, Carlos Boozer, and Dunleavy, all from the same class. You got Shavlik Randolph, Gerald Henderson, and then just recently, Marquise Bolden. Honestly, I'm not even sure where to put Rodney Hood. He's somewhere in the middle of all that because he played the year at Mississippi State. It's obviously, sat out his transfer year at Duke, and then played one season. So, I don't know if you, I don't know if you want to call it one and done, or two and done, or three and done. Uh, whatever you want. All right. Here's an interesting category: geography. We got uh, the West Coast. Or very near the west coast. In the 1980s, you got Bill Jackman from Nebraska. Jay Bryan. I don't feel like I should have counted him, to be honest. No disrespect, but it didn't. Seem, I mean, he played like a little bit in his uh, freshman season, but really didn't have much of an impact at all. I'm trying to keep this to guys who at least had some sort of impact. But either way, he's from Colorado. Mark Allery from Arizona. Jay Billis from California. And Quinn Snyder from Washington. So, right away, he was getting impact players on the West Coast. And it worked out. 90s, you got Cherokee Parks from Cali. Eric Meek, California. Ricky Price, California. Taman Domzalski, New Mexico. Chris Burgess, California. And uh, Mike Dunleavy, Oregon. And this is just where I list their hometown. So, I don't... I mean, it's always a possibility that, yeah, I'm sure they, they played... High school in different places, but this is where I list their hometown. All right, so I uh, actually, I'm not even sure. Maybe I realized it and I just forgot. But Mike Dunleavy, Oregon. That that was interesting. I I didn't realize he was from Oregon. Uh, Two thousand, Sheldon Williams, Oklahoma. I also didn't realize that. Demarcus Nelson, California. Jamal Boykin, California. Kyle Singler, Oregon. So Singler and Dunleavy, Oregon buddies. Taylor King, California, and Oleg Chiz, Nevada. Two thousand tens: Derek Thornton, California; Chase Jeter, Nevada; Frank Jackson, Utah; Marvin Bagley, Arizona, and uh, most recently Cassius Cassius Stanley or Cassius Stanley from California. All right, we got Alaska, and uh, uh, technically Alaska is considered west, but I'm counting it on its own. And that I'm sure most know Trajan Langdon and Carlos Boozer. Foreign slash overseas. Canada. Kay's first recruit that actually had an impact Dan Meager. And then you got Greg Newton and uh, RJ Barrett. I mean, I get, like I mentioned, RJ, I mean, he played high school in Florida, but I don't think anyone would doubt his uh, tried and true affiliation with Canada. England Eric Botang, though he played high school in Delaware. Lou Aldang, though he played high school in New Jersey. Lithuania, Marty Potius, though he played high school in New Hampshire. Nigeria, Sean Obi, though he played high school in Connecticut. Australia, Jack White, he did play. <laughs> he actually did play uh, high school uh, um, in Australia. And then, obviously, no doubt at all, 100%, Kyrie Irving, because he is an official Aussie. Yep, yep, that's right. All right, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it worked out pretty well from uh, the West Coast at first. I mean, the first, Bill Jackman, I mean, he was the first one he transferred. That didn't. But after that, most, most stayed, and it worked out really well. I mean, Chris Burgess he He left, but uh yeah, I think overall it was great up until um in the 2000s, Sheldon Williams and DeMarcus Nelson worked out, but then you got Jamal Boykin and Taylor King and Oleg Chiz and Derek Thornton and chase Jeter so and that was during a span when Kyle Singler did work out, but five out of six recruits from the West Coast did not, so. Wasn't going too well, but Frank Jackson and Marvin Bagley have turned it around. I mean, it really does seem to come down to just immediate playing time. Because you're not going to get homesick if everything's if you're getting minutes and it gives you something to look forward to. And it was kind of the opposite of Chris Burgess. Chris Burgess did start with minutes and then those minutes dropped drastically because of someone named Elton Brand. And uh, he left. But the other ones, it's really the ones who transferred, they just they they weren't on the court. Or, I mean, Derek Thornton, there were some issues besides that. But, yeah, the West Coast wasn't going too well for a while. So, hopefully, now, I mean, Cassius Stanley, he might not be a one and done. So, we'll see how it goes for him. Hopefully, it does work out. All right, we got we got some family connections now. All 17 Plumblies, because I believe there are 17 of them. Uh, we got Tyus and Trey Jones. We got, uh, now we're mixing uh, legit playing time and uh, walk-ons. We got Ryan and his brother, Sean Kelly. We got uh, two walk-ons. We got Joe and Nick Pagliuca. We got um, two other walk-ons, Jordan and Patrick Davidson. And then also kind of a... Uh, Interesting one. Lee Malchioni, his father, Gary, played for Duke, though not Coach K, but uh, fun, a fun family thing there. Here, here's something. most surprising non-scholarship player at Duke, Trajan Langdon. Did you realize that? Because uh, he was actually an official walk-on. The San Diego Padres paid his cost at Duke, in exchange for him agreeing to spend a set amount of days each summer in their minor league system playing baseball. I think the agreement was for like four years, and with the red shirt, he was there for five, so I don't know if he had to pay one year himself, or Duke gave him a scholarship for one year. But for four years, he was an official walk-on at Duke, and I think I don't think many people realize that. All right, intriguing walk-ons. Reggie Love, he was a wide receiver for Duke football, and he also walked on to the basketball team. So uh, when he graduated from Duke, he tried out for the Packers. He was cut. And, hey, he came back for a graduate senior season and provided a big boost. While Carlos Boozer was recovering from an ankle injury, he he made an impact. And then he became besties with uh, Barack Obama, which was pretty cool. All right, D. Bryant, he was a reserve on the 98-99 uh, team, and then after that, uh, that was during his freshman season. For his sophomore and junior year, he was the quarterback for Duke football. Duke's record in those two years, mm, not good. They were they were 0-22 during those two years, and he ended up transferring because of academics, but still an interesting story. Jay Heaps. He doubled as a reserve on the basketball team and a star on the soccer team. All, for, all four years at Duke from 96 to 99. And then after Duke, he played for the MLS and the U.S. national team. So, really cool. And uh, then my guy, my guy, the legend, the legend, Stan Bronson. Stan Bronson. He is a legend. In my heart. You want to know why? All right. Well, first, he was another scholarship soccer player like Jay Heaps, who, who found a spot on the roster when Antonio Lang got injured and then overcame a pretty brutal knee injury the next year, required two surgeries. But, okay, here it is. The last 11 games of his career, 153 minutes, of playing time. Including 22 in his last game. Versus Eastern Michigan. Unfortunately Duke lost that. That was the uh, 1995-96 season. But before, before that. In every other game he played combined. Total playing time. 55 minutes. It's amazing. Again. The last 11 games of his career. 153 minutes. Including 22 in his last. Before that, fifty-five total. Stan Bronson, walk-on, legend. All right, uh, Baker Perry—he was another walk-on during the '90s rebuild, and he wrote a pretty cool, uh, a nice article uh, giving Coach K respect. Uh, just before K won his thousandth game uh, in 2015, just uh, Google Baker Perry, Coach K tribute. I enjoyed it. All right, so we got uh, in honor of me. We got lefties, Southpaws. And this is another one where I'm sure I forgot someone. So, uh, who knows? All right, we got Johnny Dawkins. We got Thomas Hill. Lee Malchione. Josh McRoberts. Taylor King. Elliot Williams. Rodney Hood. Justice Winslow. And Luke Kennard is officially right handed, but shoots left. Marvin Bagley. R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson, Vernon Carey, and I'm pretty sure the great uh, Todd Zafarovsky is uh, left-handed also. All right, so here's here's a subject where I know some people just flip out and lose their mind anytime anything having to do with race is mentioned. This is just literally related to basketball, I'm not going anywhere else with this, but. If, uh, if you freak out just because of the topic, I will steal a line from um, old school and say earmuffs. Uh, there's really, I don't know how else to put that. Maybe fast forward a couple minutes. But I, I just think this is interesting. It has nothing to do with anything else. Just the it's interesting. So I mentioned the racial breakdown before for the different eras. I have uh, more specific numbers now. So let's see here. All right. McDonald's All-American, starting out in uh, 1982 to 1986, four black, three white. 90, uh, for 1987 and 1993, eight white, one black. The notable guys in, the, in that were uh, Leitner, Hurley, and, and uh, Grant Hill. Grant Hill was the one black guy during that uh, time period. 94 to 95, two, it was uh, two each. And then the numbers drastically changed from uh, 1996 to 2004, 13 black and 4 white. Chris Burgess, Mike Dunleavy, JJ Redick and Shavlik Randolph were the 4. And if you can't Rashawn McLeod, who is a McDonald's All-American, it becomes 14 to 4. Keep in mind Chris Carrawell and Sheldon Williams were injured. or They definitely would have made it. So basically 16 to 4 and a lot of that had to do with Johnny Dawkins coming in I would assume, I mean I don't know that for a fact but you would think something definitely changed for it to change the number to change that drastically, I mean the first uh, different type of class was 1996 uh, with uh, Chris Carwell, Nate James and um, Mike Chappell but uh, and also with Sean McLeod uh, he was a sitting the year before and then starting in 1996-97 so it was a little before uh, Johnny Dawkins came but he had a big hand in uh, I think changing the culture a little bit in terms of at least during that period of time Um, but some of those guys did leave early and uh, some of the recruits as I said casting not a wide net when you're going for very specific guys if you don't get them there's uh, not much of a backup plan so it did cost uh, Coach K at times later in those years uh, closer to 2004 than 1996 so it was interesting how uh, I talked about this with Joe in terms of maybe he wanted the continuity I can't say that for sure but from 2005 to 2009, switch back. Six white, five black. The uh, main guys, uh, Shire, Singler, Nolan Smith, to a lesser extent. Uh, or not lesser, but um, didn't uh, he left after three years. Gerald Henderson. Or no, yeah, that yeah, is a lesser extent uh, because Gerald Henderson's athleticism gave him NBA upside. They hit the perfect middle ground of not being really dominant enough to leave early but still terrific great college players who improved during their time everyone says oh if you stay you'll improve there's lots of guys you stay four years but they're limited they're just limited in what they can do their productivity you don't i mean shire singler nolan smith they improved through four years not everyone can do that so while well, you can say oh they stay that's what the difference was there's other guys who stayed weren't weren't quite the same so I mean it, it is what it is um, and then 2010 to 2019 that's when I mean with the new era 24 black and four white McDonald's all-americans the four white guys were canard have been canard Luke canard Grayson Allen Matthew Hurt and somehow Marshall Plumley, despite being ranked just uh, 61 And again, remember Derek Thornton and Marvin Bagley reclassified, and Harry Giles was injured. Otherwise, they definitely would have made it to uh, make the number twenty-seven to four and twenty-five to three from two thousand ten to two thousand eighteen. So there was a there was a big difference in terms of that. Uh, All right, so let's go through the RSCI top one hundred. The differential there, the split from. 1998 through 2004 12 black and three white the three white guys Dunleavy Reddick and Shavlick Dunleavy is 26 Reddick 11 and Shavlick Randolph 14 2005 to 2009 Six black and 11 white So yep switched around Uh, Black Botang, Boykin Gerald Henderson Lance Thomas Nolan Smith Elliot Williams The uh, the white guys, McRoberts, Paulus, Marty Poshis, Brian Zubek, John Shire, Kyle Singler, Taylor King, Oleg Chiz, Miles Plumley, Ryan Kelly, and Mason Plumley. 2010 to 2019, the guys in the RSCI top 100: 7 white and 33 black. So, of the 72 top 100 ranked Duke recruits so far in the 22 years of RSCI rankings, There has been 51 black recruits and 21 white recruits, with 11 of those white recruits coming during a five-year period of time from 2005 to 2009, and seven of them being among the 11 total top 100 recruits ranked number 36 through 100, so the lower half. Uh, Surprisingly, I mean, Matthew Hurt at number 12, he is uh, Duke's first Top 20 white recruit in a decade, top 100 white recruit in decade since uh, 2009 when Duke signed number 14 Ryan Kelly and number 18 Mason Plumley. Before Matthew Hurt, Duke's seven white top 100 recruits during the RSCI era were all the lowest in that Duke class. Though this also gives a good portrayal of just how crazy Duke's recruiting classes have been, especially starting in 2014. I mean, Luke Kennard at number 21, and Grayson Allen at number 24. I think many teams would love to have uh, guys in that number as their top recruit. I mean, even Joey Baker at number 37. There was also Alex Murphy at 49, Marshall Plumley at 61, and Alex O'Connell at uh, number 69. Nice. Uh, transfers out. Let's look at the split there. Uh, 1981 through 1995. Uh, 6 They They're all white. This was an era when basically hardly anyone transferred or left early. I mean, consider these numbers for a second. 27.6 points per game, 14.7 rebounds, five blocks at a Power 5 conference school. That player came back. Yep, those were Shaquille O'Neal's stats at LSU in his 1991 sophomore year, and he came back for his junior season. I mean, that just goes to show you it was a different time. I would probably say Shaq, Michael Jordan, and Jay Williams coming back for their junior seasons are the biggest standouts to me in terms of coming back when the draft stock just couldn't be any higher. Uh, That rarely works out even close to those three for players projected high lotto who return to school. Uh, We got 1996 to 1999, or two transfers out, split, one white, one black, Uh, 2000 to 2006, Four, all black 2007 to 2012 five three white two black 2013 to 2019 five all black transfers in five they have been uh all black mcleod dante hood uh curry and obi so again i'm not trying to create a narrative here i'm just giving the list the information but i think it does tell a story without even trying i mean without being biased in any way i don't think it's a bold statement to make to say black players are generally better than white players although college it evens out the playing field a little more because college can be more system oriented but i mean you look at the nba i mean you'd have to be blind not to notice the difference and I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. So when Duke's had, after that first kind of decade for Coach K Duke, when they've had their best teams, it has generally been when they've gotten more black players, the more athletic kind of guys who you would expect to have a better shot to do well in the NBA, guys who can create their own shot and just get buckets so I think it does make a difference. So when you when you talk about Duke's reputation and what other recruits might be thinking in terms of should I choose Duke, should I not choose Duke, uh, during the early times, yeah, Duke, when people say Duke, hey, they're a bunch of white guys, I mean, it is what it is. The numbers do show that, that a lot of their players were white. A lot of the players who got the limelight, the attention they, they were white, so I mean, there is something to it. Um, and then you look at players who Duke was known as when you got to the NBA, you wouldn't have a great career because so it's more system, and unfortunately, that was true during those two chunk classes in uh, 1998. I'm sorry 1997 1999 and then and then 2002 those those guys some of them had success in the NBA more 1997 and uh, 1999 but even so it didn't make too much of a difference there was random guys at different times like Lou Dang. but I would say uh, I mean to repeat something I said before Jabari Parker really opened everything up more than I believe, in my opinion, uh, Kyrie Irving and Austin Rivers did because once that happened, it's just the culture at Duke changed. And I'm, and it's not a culture that wants more black guys over white guys. It's not even close to that. It's just talent is talent. We don't care who you are, what you look like. We're just going to get the talented guys. We're going to get guys who hopefully have chemistry together. And help them reach their potential at Duke, and then further on with their career in the NBA. So, uh, again, I know some people just don't like even admitting that there is a race into <laughs> these players. And let's let's be also be honest. I think it is natural for many to uh, root for and identify. Um, more in terms of players that look like themselves. So, whatever you are listening to this, it it might have happened, might not um, with you. But, I mean, that's why a guy like J.J. Redick, I think so many, um, he was so divisive because, hey, he looks just like this guy who might be your neighbor to some, um, and he's dominating out there. So, So, it's just... It made people feel something. I'll I'll, I'll say that, and I, it's just I think now the reputation is everyone's just looking for that white guy at Duke. I mean, I've even heard like Joey Baker. He's going to be the next hated white guy at Duke. It's like why? Like he, he has, he's never said anything, never shown anything. I, I think Grace Nell didn't help matters with some of his uh, off court antics. But he, even so, I mean, it's tough when Christian Leitner kind of started that whole thing and then JJ Reddick. I would say he suffered for it during it. He kinda of suffered for what JJ J., for what Christian Leitner started, but JJ Reddick didn't do anything to kind of tone it down. And so yeah, I I mean that, that kind of started a trend, but after that, I mean it it hasn't been these annoying white guys that dude like some would have you think. But there is a there is something to that reputation you gotta see both sides of it look at the perspective as a whole taking a step back alright so the last thing assistant coaches I mean, these are again a lot of like Coach K started off with the Army guys the West Point guys and I, I probably should have looked a little harder well, um, starting off his career I couldn't find the whole coaching staff so I have uh, 8081 Chuck Swenson, Bobby Dwyer, and same thing for his second season. Both of those guys came from uh, West Point. Then the ne- next we have uh, Swenson, Dwyer, Gardet and uh, Bob Bender. So after that, Dwyer leaves. So you got Swenson, Gaudette, and Bender for the next two years. After that, for the '86 season, you had Tom Rogers. Then Tom Rogers leaves. You got Mike Bray. So, you got Swenson, Gaudette, Bender, and Mike Bray. Uh, the next season is the first season where you you add that ex Duke player for the first time. So, you got Gaudette, Bender, Bray, Tommy Amaker, and then also one of his ex players at Army, Scott Easton, as a volunteer assistant. And Scott Easton allows me to read a, a really cool. Story, not cool because uh, sounds pretty awful when you say it that way. But something that really made an impact is from the Winston-Salem Journal, and we're talking to Scott Easton. And I uh, will just read straight from the article. Easton said things didn't always go right during his four years at Army. He played under Coach K at Army. Uh, Easton said things didn't always go right during his four years at Army. But he said he learned so much from Krzyzewski that didn't sink in until after he left school. Easton's most lasting memory, he said, was the way Sheshevsky went above and beyond the call of duty for his players. In Easton's senior year in December of 1978, he had missed two free throws late in a game that, allude, that ended up costing Army the game. On that same night, Easton's brother, Tim, was killed in a car accident. Coach K was the person who told me that Timmy had been killed, Easton recalled. He came down the hallway to see me, and I thought we were going to discuss the missed free throws, but he had to break the news to me. Krzyzewski's only concern was Easton and his family. During the funeral procession for Timmy, I didn't want to be in the car, so I walked close by, and Coach K was right there beside me giving me support, Easton said. His presence in my life during that situation, and what I had to go through, it's something I will never forget. Nearly 10 years later, Easton had caught the coaching bug. After doing his tour of duty with the Army after graduation, Easton was given a shot to help that Duke team in 1987-88. Uh, Easton was a volunteer assistant at age 31, thanks to his former coach at Army. So, it just it just goes to show in terms of the impact that Coach K can make, and you hear constantly about what's officially reported, but some of some of these stories that you might not know. I mean, though, that's that's pretty, that's pretty deep. That's that's an impact right there. All right, so he was a volunteer assistant for that season. Uh, then you get so you got Jay Billis joining the next year. So you got Godette, Bender, Bray, Amaker, and Billis then you uh, then Bender drops out so for the next three years it's four guys Gaudette Bray Amaker and Billis for the 1992-93 season you you drop who let's see you drop Billis then Quinn Snyder joins so replace x-player for x-player then yep it's the same thing for the next season you add Tim O'Toole the season after but that, that is the 94-95 season when Kay, he misses it after, I believe, 13 games. Gaudet takes over. Things didn't do well. And uh, Gaudette, unfortunately, he is out after that season. So is Bray. And it ends up Amaker, Quinn Snyder, Tim O'Toole, and David Henderson. So that's when you have three out of the four guys are now ex-Duke players. And Then Johnny Dawkins joins in 1998 after the same uh, four coaches the season after so You have Johnny Dawkins David Henderson Quinn Snyder uh, In the 98-99 season 99-2000 you have Henderson Dawkins and Steve Wojo and then uh, 2000-2001 through 2007-2008 You have the same staff the whole time. Dawkins, Chris Collins, and Wojo. So it was great to get that consistency. 2008-2009, you got Collins, Wojo, and then Nate James. So there's a difference there. I think Nate James might have been there uh, before. He might have been like a strength and conditioning coach. I mean, sometimes you have these guys who they're not official coaches, but they are on the staff, and it's kind of thought of in the same way. Uh, uh, say for the 2010 season Collins, Wojo, and James 2011, Capel, Collins, Wojo, and James so Capel joins in for the 2010-2011 season 2013, you got Capel, Collins, Wojo, and James uh, 2014, Capel, Wojo, and James 2015, Capel, James, then John Shire joins 2016, same thing 2017, Nolan Smith joins and I think Nolan Smith technically is called the director of basketball operations, but I mean he was he was still he's still there. It's it still gas. Um, and uh, then when uh, when Capel leaves for Pittsburgh after the 2018 season, as we have currently, it is uh, Nate James, John Shire, Nolan Smith, and Chris Carwell. So that pretty much sums up. Kind of the the deeper of the deep dive, the bonus stuff where you got real into it. Some of it is kind of listing off, but it just gives good context as to really what is going on, all the factors. Again, I mean, um, like the rankingslash McDonald's, all Americans, the type of error and the continuity, assistant coaches, the recruiting strategy, the transfers, the red shirts, the unexpected. Um, I mean the program reputation what it's known for and simply put whether guys work out or not it all has an effect so while I've always been and will always remain the type to I like the basketball part of it I'm not into recruiting I I love scouting I mean that's why uh, I, I love the NBA draft and everything that goes into it and the way I can project prospects but It's not the same thing for uh, the way that recruiting is covered. Recruiting is covered basically like a uh, soap opera and drama and gossip and I'm not into that. Some people are. More power to them. I stay away from all that but it is interesting just to look at how everything's changed and just Duke recruiting as a whole since Coach K has arrived there. And I mentioned with Joe, I think the rule is going to change in 2022 with players able to go straight pro again. So we'll see how that works out. And as Coach K kind of reaches what will, I mean, you'd like to think he's everlasting at Duke, will coach forever. But the twilight of his coaching career, you would assume is uh, coming very soon. Um, we'll, we'll see how the recruiting strategy changes, if it does at all, as it gets, as we get to that 2022 uh, year and it nears, because I mean, it's almost here already. All right, so that sums up everything for recruiting. Um, if you have any questions or want to know any of the information again, uh, just email Duke Basketball Corner. At gmail.com, I will respond. And, uh, yeah, thanks thanks so much for listening. This part was for the absolute, kind of devoted to uh, just information type of fans. And uh, whoever you are, thanks so much for listening. I will be back soon with another... Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. As the season nears, it'll be here before we even know it. I'm Adam Comroe and this has been Duke Basketball Corner.